Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I am your host. And today we've got a great episode with Mr. Colorado Trail himself, Hefe Branham. Hefe lives in Gunnison, Colorado, which basically puts the Colorado Trail and the Colorado Trail race in his backyard, and it has been for about the past 30 years. His relationship with the trail goes back to almost the very beginning of when he moved there and hiked it for the first time. Since then, he went on to bike pack it for the first time in 2007, and he just completed the Colorado Trail Race for the ninth time. And out of those nine finishes, he won four of them. There are truly probably very few people who are more knowledgeable of the Colorado Trail Race than Hefe Branham, which is why he's earned the title Mr. Colorado Trail over here at Bikes for Death. I really enjoyed our conversation. He's a super down-to-earth guy who has a lot of experience on this race, and we talk about what keeps him coming back year after year, what motivates him, uh, and why does he keep coming back to one of the hardest bikepacking races there is? But before we get to that episode, I want to extend a special thanks to all the supporters of the Bikes for Death podcast. Legitimately, a month ago, I had talked to my friends, my family, and I had you know come to the conclusion that it looks like this might be the end of the road for at least a little while as I potentially refocus on my real estate career. And I threw a Hail Mary. And since then, I have been overwhelmed by all of the support I've received. So let's give a special shout out to our newest sustaining patrons of the Bikes for Death podcast, starting off with Mike Monroe, Lee Johnson, Matt Windsor, Mark Bryson, Pierre Jovin, Steve Caps, Boss Bertrand, Brianne O'Neill and Eric Elbert. Thank y'all so much for signing up to be sustaining members of the Bikes for Death podcast. I truly cannot do it without y'all. And I have been overwhelmed by all the support from the community. If you have been valuing these episodes, if you enjoy them and you like to see the Bikes for Death podcast show up in your podcasting feed, do me a favor, head over to patreon.com forward slash bikes or death and see how you can become a sustaining member of the show all while earning some special patron perks just for you like the patron only podcast the after party where anything can happen plus discounts to the store early release and so much more and this week i am excited to introduce Two new sustaining sponsors of the Bikes for Death podcast, much like sustaining members of the show that sign up to support the show on a monthly basis. I've been fortunate to find some companies that would like to also step up to be sustaining sponsors of the Bikes for Death podcast. First, I'd like to give a shout out to Kuat Bike Racks. I've been an ambassador of Kuat for a couple years now. I've been super impressed with not only their racks, obviously they make great bike racks, great bike products, but also the company itself. 
And they're a company that I have really wanted to partner with because I want to be partnering with companies that I believe in, that I know can provide value to you, the listener. And Kuat definitely fits that bill. I have been, honestly, I've been kind of pursuing them in the background for a little while. And I am so stoked to tell you that they have signed up to be a sustaining supporter of the Bikes for Death podcast all the way through 2022. So big shout out to Kuat for stepping up to make sure that the Bikes for Death podcast keeps on rolling, keeps on going, keeps on keeping on. So a big shout out to Kuat for believing in Bikes for Death and for supporting the show it means everything. And listen, I've got some inside news that there is a new bike rack coming from Kuat. We are going to be announcing what it is and giving you all the juicy details next week. But for now, that is all I can say. So if you're thinking about a bike rack, think Kuat because you love your bike. I'm also excited to announce another sustaining sponsor of the Bikes for Death podcast, Quadlock. If you're not familiar with Quadlock, they make the bike case and bike mount that I use for my iPhone. I ditched my bike computer years ago in an effort for simplicity. I've become obsessed with simplicity. And I personally have found that my iPhone works very well for bikepacking, navigating, taking pictures, calling somebody if you're lost and you have service. And since switching to Quadlock, for my bike mount. I've also started using their car mount, their desk mount, all kinds of stuff. I really love Quadlock products and I'm super stoked that they've stepped up to be sustaining members of the Bikes for Death podcast. So you're gonna be hearing me talk a lot about these companies over the next who knows how long. But this week I mostly just wanted to give them a shout out and publicly say thank you for supporting the Bikes for Death podcast. It is through the efforts of the community and some of these wonderful companies that have stepped up to see value in what we're doing over here, that believe in the Bikes for Death podcast and believe that these conversations have value. And I am so grateful for your support because it really does allow me to keep on producing the show and do something that I absolutely love. So without further ado, let's have Mr. Miles Arbor take it away with the Bikes for Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. I have a question for you. Is it Hefe or? Yeah. It is Hefe. Is that? I mean, not my real name. My real name is Jeff, but I've been called Hefe for so long that I don't even think of myself as Jeff per se. I mean, there's still people who call me Jeff, but I would say 90% of my friends and family call me Hefe. How many of them call you El Hefe? That is pretty rare. <laughs> <laughs> we just saved that for your I don't bike. Think it's, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think they want to add the title to it. They just want yeah. to acknowledge it. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Well, I wanted to, I, I had never met anyone named Hefe before, and I was curious if that was your given name or not. No, 
No, it was a nickname that basically just kind of took over and kind of stuck so much that it basically, when I was, when I first moved to Gunnison, I worked on main street and main street was a pretty tight group of people who worked together in all the restaurants and bars. And, you know, basically in that group of people, someone started calling me Hefe. And like, by the time it caught on, I, if I called myself Jeff, people wouldn't know who they were talking to. So, um, it, it was a more relevant name than my real name. Yeah. And I didn't never really love the name Jeff. So I was like, I'm going to roll with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no offense to my parents. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say shit about your name, but I do like Hefe. It's a great, it's a great nickname. What about this one? Another thing I've heard you called before is uh Mr. Colorado trail. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's fairly accurate. (laughs) (laughs) I think it might fit. I mean, I know, uh, you know, again, another title that I've heard other people give you before, but you know, for anyone who doesn't know, you just come off the Colorado trail for the ninth time. Is that correct? It's my ninth uh, CTR. So Colorado trail race. Um, I've actually hiked it a couple of times and I've toured it a couple of times, but I've raced it nine times successfully. I'd started in 2011 and I didn't finish that year. So that was my only DNF. But yeah, I have nine finishes now. Now, if my math is correct, you completed it first in 2013 and then you've completed it every year after that? No, I did the first race in 2007. Oh. That was the inaugural race was in 2007. And then um, I've kind of missed, missed them here and there since then. I did it in 2013. That was the first time we went in this direction. Up until then, it was always from north to south, or some people like to say east to west. But in 2013, we it was the first time the direction was flipped. I did race that year for sure. Okay. Yeah. So I've kind of, kind of scattered throughout the years. Yeah. I wonder if you could actually, you know, as I was like researching this podcast, there isn't, doesn't seem to be one definitive source for you know the whole historicity of the colorado trail race specifically the there's a great website the colorado trail project or trail foundation that talks a lot about the actual historicity of the trail how it came to be but i'm curious your own history like when you found out about the trail and how you've kind of evolved as a cyclist over the years Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I discovered the Colorado Trail, I think it was in 1993. A friend of mine was working in a coffee shop that I spent way too much time in, and um, he was planning a, a trip of hiking on it. And um, I mean, I was, I think I was 20 or 21 years old at the time, and I just, I was looking for something, something to break the mold of what I was doing. And when he was talking about it, I just kind of latched on to what he was doing. And of course, with his permission, I basically got into the, his trip and we started planning. So my first trip was hiking it from, uh, we were planning on doing the whole thing, but we only hiked the Northern half to basically Monarch pass. And then for various reasons, we didn't finish. And so that's how I discovered the Colorado trail. I mean, I, I had never backpacked before or uh, any of that stuff. I hadn't really camped that much. You know, I, was, I wouldn't say I was like a sheltered life, but in the East, I came from the East coast and we just didn't really camp in Connecticut that much. There's just not that much public land and it just wasn't something that we did. So it was a huge, huge change in my life. Um, it was a, I would say it was a pivotal moment in my life. You know, before I, I hiked the Colorado trail, I was more of a materialist. I was definitely more into having stuff than experiences. And it was a tough decision for me, honestly, because I had to give up some of that to do the Colorado trail. I had just like moved into a house that I was all excited to live in. And I ended up moving out of the house and being homeless so I could afford to do the trail. And, you know, a lot of decisions kind of like that, where I was like, 
taking a big chance to go do something I didn't know really anything about and wasn't sure if I was going to like it even, but it, it turned out to be life-changing. Being out there just felt amazing. And, you know, I returned a few years later and finished the trail, hiking it from Monarch to Durango. And I spent quite a few years backpacking for a while. I moved to Colorado in 92 and I was definitely a mountain biker for a few years, but I couldn't really afford it. I couldn't afford to keep up with the maintenance and, and I wasn't a very good mechanic and it was just kind of frustrating. And so after that Colorado trail hike, I just got really into backpacking for a few years and it was a really, really good thing for me. Um, I learned to kind of chill out. I let, let go of a lot of angst and frustration that I wasn't really dealing with well. And uh, I just learned to chill and I learned to be out in the woods and loved it. How long does it take to hike it? Um, you know, I think we took like 25 days on each half. And then I hiked, I hiked it from Durango to Kenosha and then to a little bit different finish than going all the way to Denver in 2000. And uh, that was like 40 days, but that was like with my best friend and we both took our dogs and it was, that was an awesome trip. What brought you to the area originally? You said you're from the East Coast and you first found out about it in your early 20s. What brought you to the area originally? I had friends going to Western State College. And uh, I had a friend that came out here his first year after high school, a bunch of friends from high school. And then another friend that I graduated high school was coming out here for his sophomore year. And they were going to rent a house and they were like, hey, do you want to go? And, and same kind of thing. I like just knew I had to get out of Connecticut um, where I was from. and. Uh, I had never been to Colorado, never been to Gunnison. So it was just like sight unseen. I was like, hopped in the U-Haul with all my stuff and was like, screw it, let's go. And, you know, same thing. Like, I would say, you know, the first six months of living in Gunnison, I wasn't in love with it because it's a recreational place. You know, there's not a lot of stuff going on in this town. In fact, especially back in 1992, the town was pretty dead. And so, like, I just was like, what do they do, you know? kind of like a punk rock guy and I don't know there wasn't a whole lot of music going on and you know that whole scene and so it, it took me a while to really kind of get the the gist of why people lived here but like I said once all that stuff kind of sunk into my blood it was it was like I, I don't want to live anywhere else there's just so much recreational opportunities here and tons of public land and I just I love I love it here how much of your love for the area is informed specifically by the Colorado Trail the Colorado Trail race and how much of it is just the area at large I would say it's the area at large. I mean, it's being uh, proximal to the Colorado Trail definitely makes it easier logistically to to participate in, you know, either hiking and or racing it or whatever. I'm roughly halfway between Durango and Denver. So like, you know, getting to the start of the Colorado Trail is fairly easy compared to, you know, the Tour Divide or the AZT or anything like stuff like that. So it's definitely convenient uh, in that set. But yeah, it's just, I mean, I just, I mean, Gunnison's... Uh, it's definitely been discovered, um, but I would say it's still not as easy to get to as some other places in Colorado. So it's still a, a, a great recreational place to be for sure. Not anymore. Not till everybody hears this podcast. You just blew it uh, up. I know it, it's, it's, it's already <laughs> over. I mean, we're really close to Crested Butte. So yeah, it's I'm not like kidding. <laughs> the area hasn't been known for a while, but it's, it is, it is nuts though. <laughs> oh, I believe it. Here. I believe it. I believe it. So, I mean, I'm curious to know like what you do for a living. I, you're one of these people that I've watched for a while. You've done so many things and bikepacking the outdoors. It's almost overwhelming to chat because it's like, you know, what do we do? I mean, you just got the single speed record on, on the AZT as well. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot. 
But what do you do for a living that allows you to train, to to participate in all these things? <laughs> Obviously, you yeah. caught the bug early on, and I, it seems like it's probably informed, I'm guessing, your job, your lifestyle, everything. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, there was a, like probably a like 20-year period of my life that I literally made most of my decisions to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to. So yeah, I definitely have sacrificed a lot as far as job security and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, I've made my living as a bike mechanic and as a cook, you know, living up in a mountain town, you kind of do whatever you can. I've built trails, I've laid out trails, I've washed dishes, you know, I've done just basically everything. But I mean, I'm a pretty good bike mechanic and that's generally what I end up doing for a living. And that's what I'm currently doing. But I'm actually right now, I'm mostly being a dad. My wife has a really good job and she's, she's working a lot. And uh, we have a two-year-old, two-and-a-quarter-year-old little girl. And uh, I spend a lot of my time hanging out with her and taking care of her and working other times, too. And uh, it's funny that you said something about training because, like, ever since uh, ever since the little one came along, training is uh, a kind of a joke. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'll be 100% honest with you. I really don't know how I pulled off AZT and the CTR this year with the volume that I'm doing. Huh. Um, I've definitely... I've never been like a by the book kind of training person. Um, I had a coach when I trained for the 2014 tour divide, but that was about the only time I've ever had any like outside structure applied to what I do. And it's kind of tricky too, because I think I was, my method of training was just riding a lot and trying not to ride too much. And now that I don't ride very much, it's like, Oh shit, I don't actually know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, Cause I mean, and, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating in the slightest but I mean, my biggest mileage week was 80 miles going into the CTR and most mileage weeks were 40 miles. So like I was getting two rides a week, about 20 to 25 miles a week. So like 40 to 50 miles is pretty average for me this summer. It's just the way it is. Do you think that speaks to like experience? You know, I mean, you've yeah. just been doing it for so long. You're mentally tougher. You know, you kind of know the trail. And I'm pretty good at, I guess, dealing with discomfort and pain. And just kind of putting it in a different part of your head and dealing with it. And not to say that I don't feel it, but I think, but yeah, I mean, I, a lot of his experience. I mean, it, I wouldn't have been able to pull off either of those times in the, the physical state I was if I didn't have as much experience as I had, especially on the CT. Um, I just know that trail so well that it makes that definitely helps. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was, it was, it was hard. It really, really hurt this year like deep down kind of pain. Yeah. Like my legs were just, I mean, I had, it was all about mental and there was, there wasn't a whole lot in the tank. <laughs> what have you found that keeps you pushing? Where, where do you go? You know, what have you figured out over all these years that allows you to just keep on pushing? Uh, I, I think a lot of it's just desire and the, the, the hunger for whatever it is you're going after in this case, a finish or, you know, trying to go a reasonably quick time. And I don't know. I just, I love being out there. You know, I mean, like I said, this, this year really hurt and it was really hard, but it was awesome too. You know, whenever I wasn't like focusing on how crappy I felt, I was really stoked and looking around and it's, it's, it really is just a, a gorgeous trail. And, and I've spent so much time on it that like, I just get flushed with memories whenever I'm going through a section, you know, I think of all the different times I've gone through that same section and, you know, if I camped there, or if it was raining a different time and, it just fills my being with Colorado trail loveliness, you know? Yeah. And, uh, that's, I, I feel like that, that's a lot of it that keeps me good. It's just, you know, the Colorado trail, it feels like a good friend in a lot of ways, you know, yeah. and going out there, it just kind of feels like you're hanging out with a good friend, you know, even though you're getting your ass kicked, it's comforting in a way, you know? 
So I've never done the Colorado Trail. Describe it. You know, describe your good friend to us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, and I know it depends on the weather and everything. So yeah, give give people an idea of what the Colorado Trail race is like, and and what it could be like to go and ride it or race it. So the Colorado Trail is it was definitely designed to be a hiking trail, and it goes from Durango to Denver or Denver to Durango. And you know, it, it started out as just like the most basic linkage they could kind of come up to make it work, and then they've refined it over the years, adding more and more single track and. Um, the trail's definitely gotten better and better, um, but it's a rough, rugged chunk of uh, Colorado. You end up going up to some pretty high elevations. There's so much hike a bike. I mean, it's oh, there's always somebody at the end of the race who's like, that is not a bike race. That's a hiking race with a bike. Um, I mean, some people get pissed. They're just like, why would you even tell someone to bring a bicycle on that? All I did was walk. And there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> I mean, I took a single speed. So I, I really pointed that home. <laughs> <laughs> I walked so much, but you know, it's, 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 it, it works. Um, but I mean, it's, it's a, it's just beautiful. It literally traverses some of the prettiest places in Colorado. I mean, there's a lot of other pretty places in Colorado, but it hits a lot of really cool spots. Is one of the things that makes it special is just simply, you know, that it doesn't go through towns as frequently, that it is just wilderness area. I, I live in Texas, so we don't have all the public lands. I mean, we're lucky yeah, yeah. to get, you know, gravel roads through a national forest here. So is that part of what just makes it special is how off pavement and off, you know, away from civilization it is? Yeah, I mean, it, for the most part, um, so the Colorado Trail itself doesn't go through any towns really. And then the, the Colorado trail race route goes a little bit different because it, the the Colorado trail itself goes through some wilderness areas and we're not allowed to take bicycles through those. So we do go through a few more towns than the actual trail does, but even those towns are pretty small. I mean, we're talking Silverton and Buena Vista and Leadville. And in between, you definitely feel like you're out there. Although the trail is definitely getting busier this year. It was markedly busy. Uh, there's a lot of hikers out. I mean, it was intense how many hikers were out and there's a fairly good amount of bike packers. Everybody's itching. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's, it's on for sure. And a lot of bike packers. Yeah. Just a ton of people out there. So you don't really get as much of a solitude feeling, um, some days, but you definitely still feel like you're out there and, and there's definitely places where you are, you know, quite a ways away from any sort of masses of humans for sure. Especially the Southern part of the state. It's, there's just not, there's no big towns down there. And a lot of chunks of that land are really, really hard to access. So it's just like, you definitely, you definitely feel alone at times for sure. That's what I've um, heard. Especially when you're above 12,000 feet, that's when you really feel it. Has there ever been a conversation? I know for like the AZT, there was a, you know, a special designation or, or variance given for a wilderness area. Is that correct? No. So the, the AZT goes through the national park. Um, oh, it's a national and park. National parks have different rules than wilderness. Wilderness, you're not supposed to possess a bicycle at all, um, even if it's, in a, if it's in a disassembled state. Um, whereas the national park, their rule is that it just can't, the wheels can't touch the ground. Disassembled bike in the national park and carry it and you're kind of okay. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to get clear on that again, coming from Texas without as much public lands. These are things that I'm not as intimately aware of, but I'm, I was curious. Yeah. The, 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 the minutia of uh, access is definitely different depending on the land manager for sure. And something I was reading, it talked about, it gets so high that hypoxia is a, a, a potential risk whenever you're doing this race. Yeah. 
I haven't heard of anybody having that specific problem, but I mean, there's definitely chunks, you know, there's a pretty big chunk between Silverton and, uh, you know, Spring Creek Pass or the Coach Joe Pills where you're, you know, the, the minimum elevation you're at is 11,800 feet and you're going up to, to 13.2. So most of the time you're like right around 12,000 feet and that's for like 35 miles, basically straight pretty exposed <laughs> um there's definitely not a lot of oxygen up there and it's and it's it's not i mean some of the trails amazing up there like quite a few people will remark about like dude i looked at my gps and i was riding my bike at thirteen thousand feet like this is amazing you know and it is like there's sections of it you're like this is just amazing but there's plenty of hike a bike up there too and oh man those hike a bikes are because <laughs> there's just no oxygen um so yeah i mean altitude is definitely a serious serious consideration um even if you're not talking about getting like absolutely sick like hospitalization sick just the, the effects that it has on you is definitely dramatic and there's places where you know trying to go at speed is extremely difficult because there's just no oxygen and i think people that don't live in you know at high altitude have a, a much much harder time for sure I mean, I live at 7,700 feet. Yeah. <laughs> so that helps a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm at 278 here. So <laughs> it's low. <laughs> it's real low. Yeah. Yeah. I'm basically on the coast. So yeah, it's pretty bad. What about weather? I know I was actually just watching Andrew Strimke, uh, uh, his Instagram video that he posted and talking about some pretty nasty weather and basically just up high and, and praying uh, is all he could do. Yeah. It was, um, it was pretty nasty this year. I've definitely had at least two previous Colorado trail races where it was pretty wet. This one was, it was a little bit more localized. It was basically just in the San Juans, at least for my timing, but going into Silverton was absolutely insane. The first day, I mean, we were lucky. The forecast was in just looked insane. Like it was 90% chance of rain from like 10 o'clock on in the morning and we were just all like crap. Um, but luckily it held off until about six, six thirty at night, but then it rained super hard. And, um, by the time I got to Silverton, I was completely drenched and freezing. And that actually caused quite the, quite the strategic move in the race this year because, um, Neil Bauchenko was the only person to really leave Silverton that first day. Everybody else stayed in town. So he, he was able, because he was far enough ahead, he got up Stony Pass before the rain really hit. And I think he probably had a pretty scary night up there. Um, but he was, he made like a 30 mile gap because of that. And, um, you know, he's so fast on top of that, that nobody was going to catch him. Um, but yeah, I mean, the only people that left Silverton, like, from what I understand, turned around and went back because it was just, it was just gnarly. And uh, climbing up to 12,000 feet when it's already cold and wet is like, I was like, uh, I wanted to chase him and I wish I had the, the desire to overpower my uh, reluctance, but I was like, no way, man, I know what's up there and it's, I'm going to be freezing because it's hard to stay warm up that, at that section anyways, even if you're not wet. So do you think Neil just had already was so far deep into it that there was no turning around or do you think that, yeah, yeah. he's coming on the show. So I'll ask him. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, that would, I I haven't talked to him about it, but I I would imagine he got far enough that he wasn't going to turn around and it was probably just as much, as much exposure to go back down. Um, because he was quite a ways ahead of everybody. He was flying. This question actually came up recently on, uh, my bikes or death private Facebook group about, you know, protocol. We have a, a member that's, um, riding, I think she's in Colorado right now, actually. But what do you? What is protocol when you're above tree line and you know one of these summer storm comes in and you're riding your bike? I mean, the, the proper thing to do is to get 
down as quickly as possible. Protocol during the race is kind of up to the racers risk, risk approach. Yeah. I think a lot of bad decisions are made out there because of the race, you know, influencing people's decisions, myself included, but sometimes you don't really feel like you have a choice either. Like when I was heading towards Silverton this year, that storm rolled in and there's some pretty exposed stuff heading to Mullis pass. And, you know, it was either ride through it or stay up and wait and get wet. And I chose to ride through it, but it was definitely a little scary. I mean, there's basically no tree cover whatsoever and you're buzzing through the the Alpine and just lightning going over your head. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrifying. Um, yeah. Uh, it's definitely, I mean, the, the protocol is to, to stay low or to get low if you're up high and it starts to happen. But uh, a lot of times, like that section I was telling you about, and I think it's um, section 23 and 22 of the Colorado Trail, known as Coney's and Cataract by a lot of people, you're just up there for like 35 miles and you're just exposed. And But the thing is, if you were to lose elevation, you would be getting way off route because like the route does not drop elevation until you're done. Um, with that section. So if you were trying to find safe ground, you would be getting way off route. And, you know, a lot of people are just not going to make that decision unless they really are terrified. So it definitely is kind of, kind of a little sketchy um, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, the potential. Uh, again, I don't, I don't live around mountains, uh, but I was just on the beach not too long ago and a lightning storm rolled in. I mean, we would just see the whole thing coming and I, I didn't, I've never been on in the beach on a lightning storm. So I started Googling it. What do you do? And it basically said, get off the beach. <laughs> you know, you're the, uh, you're <laughs> yeah. the, you're the go tallest home. thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go home. Uh, yeah. so that's what we did, but it was, it was scary. Cause I mean, we were just sitting there and the lightning was getting closer and closer and closer. And, uh, I've never been up on a mountain, uh, whenever, you know, a lightning storm came in and, uh, it came up recently and I'm like, Hey, that, that would be some good information to put out there. But it sounds like, yeah, I mean, get, get down or, or uh, it's, it's your own personal risk tolerance. Yeah. I mean, there's like protocols for, if you're not able to, to reduce elevation, you know, you're supposed to crouch, sit on a piece of foam and keep your feet just the right amount of distance apart. So if you do get hit, it doesn't bounce around and stuff. Um, there's definitely information out there and I know some of it, but I'm, I'm definitely not an expert. Um, I'm kind of a dumbass, to be honest. I just go for it. <laughs> hey, man, <laughs> yeah. it's uh, it's it's your ride, man. You get to decide how. Or, you or I just stay in Silverton and wait, <laughs> which is what I did this year. I just hid and waited. So, uh, if you were gonna give a percentage to what percentage is hike and what percentage is bike, do you have a, an idea of what that would be? Um, it's a great question, and I think it depends a lot on the rider. Like, I was with some guys who were riding a lot of stuff like even more than I would have been riding if I was on a geared bike. Um, and in all honesty, I don't walk that much more on a single speed. My way of doing the CT has always been when I kind of hit a certain level of power needed to push the pedals. I just get off the walk. Um, I just save the energy. I'm all about saving the energy and it, it's always worked for me. And there's a few guys out there that definitely can keep pedaling and stay ahead of me, but they're most of them fade not to just, you know, diss on anybody, but it's just, it's, it's just so hard to keep that kind of intensity available, um, for that long. But I would say, I mean, I always guess that I walk about 75 to a hundred miles. Some people like think that's insane and not possible. And I've heard a few people on single speed say that they walk 150 miles. Um, I don't know a way of like correlating that. I think you can kind of look at your, your track leaders and kind of figure out by, uh, miles per hour, 
I think Kurt Refsnyder did that once with some ride and he like figured out exactly like how much he walked and stuff. But, um, but that would be my guess. But yeah, it really depends on the, um, on the rider. Like I said, there was guys I was riding with who were riding almost everything, um, except for like the most ridiculous stuff. And I was like blown away. They were so strong. Just in the beginning, or do you think they maintain that effort throughout the whole thing? No, I mean, I, I, there was the, the, there was a kid in front of me named Will. Every time I saw him, he was riding his bike. And there was a guy that I was bumping back and forth with named Scott Simmons, who was same thing. Just, I mean, he, he would come by me every afternoon. He'd pass me every afternoon and he was just riding stuff so strong. It was impressive, but he eventually faded a little bit. Both those guys were geared. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. That brings me to my next question, which is single speed versus geared. And I don't think you were being insulting by saying, Oh, I can, you know, usually keep up with them, but there's some distinct advantages with going single speed, especially on a, a race like this, where it's so rugged, there is so much hike a bike and you're going to be pushing a, a lighter bike. You know, you're going to be carrying a lighter bike, whatever it may be. And so it's kind of like an equalizer in a lot of ways. So can you speak to single speed versus geared? I mean, obviously you've landed on single speed. Maybe you can, maybe that's a good question. When did you sw- switch to single speed and why? So this is only my second CTR on a single speed. And actually it's, I did the math while I was out there and it's been 11 years since I did one on a single speed. I was really questioning my choice at times. Um, <laughs> the other thing I remember, or I did the math and figured out was the last time I had raced this direction was 2015. Um, and that was six years ago. And my life has changed quite a bit in the last six years. And I was like, hmm, I was a little bit cocky about this choice. <laughs> Because going out of Durango, you just, you, you, uh, the climb is just massive right off the bat. When you leave Denver, you kind of meander along a little bit more before you really start to climb. In fact, it's like, it's kind of a little bit meandery all the way to Breckenridge, sort of. Uh, whereas like out of Durango, it's just like, bam, you're going straight up. Um, so I mean, like the first day, I just walked every uphill until I hit Silverton, basically, it felt like. But I mean, as far as advantage or disadvantage, I don't know if a single speed really gives you an advantage. My single speed is not necessarily that much lighter. I bet there was guys with full, full suspension bikes out there way lighter than mine. Cause I don't, I don't chimp on stuff. I have a, I have good wheels, good tires. Like I don't have a light bike. I'd much rather have a bike that can plow into stuff. <laughs> so I, I don't have a super light bike. So it's not necessarily an advantage in that. I just love the simplicity of it, I guess. Um, and just not just, just taking one less thing out of the equation and just making it that much more simple and and you know it, there's there was moments where it, it was awful you know like the flats i geared it pretty easy and the flats sucked guys were passing me on the flats like it was nothing what um, was your gearing uh i ran a 33 24 but yeah i mean it, it was just just a personal choice really um and i wasn't choosing it because i thought it would be advantageous with the weather being super wet, like if it had continued being wet throughout the race, I think the single speed might've been a little bit more of an advantage. Cause I think drive trains would have started blowing up if it kept raining. Um, but like I said, it, it was only really the first day for us, for me anyways, that was really wet. And then the second day it rained for an hour. Um, and then it was just hot and dry after that. But like I said, if it had kept raining, the single speed might've been more advantageous for me, it's just, I just love the simplicity. And I mean, you know, like I said, I'm a bike mechanic, so I fix bikes and I don't want to fix bikes when I'm on the trail. <laughs> and so it's single speed doesn't usually need much except the chain looped and we just keep going. Yeah. And that's that's kind of like my whole, my whole process when I'm out there anyways, is just keep going. Um, try not to stop much and just keep going. And the single speed kind of really does apply to that. 
but like I said, I don't think it's an advantage. Most people would hate it. <laughs> well, I mean, we see a lot. I mean, we see uh, like Andrew's out there on a single speed, Alexander's yeah. on a single yeah. speed, Katie's on a single speed. Yeah. I know there's probably a lot more, but I mean, um, yeah, no, there's a few more for sure. Because of all the hike a bike, because of how gnarly it is, and you're more likely to hit a derailleur or wreck, and you know something could snap oh, yeah. off. I mean, there's it. To me, again, not having ever done it, it seems like there could be maybe not advantages, but some some good reasoning why a single speed could make sense on this route versus, you know, something that's just like very flat. And well, I guess then you just pick a different gear. But yeah, I, I would also say that I don't think I don't think anybody who was riding a single speed was choosing it because they thought it was an advantage. I think they're just like they're single speeders they just love riding single speeds <laughs> i get it man i was yeah. on my i i uh you know in texas we don't have much climbing so i've switched exclusively to uh my single speed fargo and i've got the i got a chumba chumba stella tie so i'm riding you know one of these bikes that a lot of these other uh you know andrew and all these people have but it's geared and i don't ride it as much in texas so it's like save for like when i go out of state and there's actually climbing so right. i i don't know i need to figure that out i need to figure out a system where it's like single speed in texas and then i have like my gears i throw on whenever i leave the state or another bike you know another bike solves yeah, everything another bike. there you go <laughs> <laughs> It's a good excuse to buy another bike. I got a question just for my editor, the editor of this show, Ben Crannell. He's coming to tour uh, the Colorado Trail. And he asked, so water capacity for someone touring the route. Um, is there, he, he believes there's lots of water, lots of water uh, filtering opportunities. Uh, what do you recommend? For the most part, you're hitting water fairly often. Um, there's only a couple sections where water is scarce or less desirable. And generally that's because there's a lot of cows. I carried a two liter bladder and like a regular 24 ounce bottle. And that was plenty. I would say touring, maybe add a liter to that. Oh, I, I did have a, a, a one liter bee free filter too. And I would sometimes use that as extra capacity. Um, so I guess I could carry three liters plus a bottle. But yeah, I was say three liters to four liters is probably plenty. Uh, I think it's good to have at least a couple different containers to put them in. Um, but yeah, that's, that's usually enough. And he says one other thing on the wilderness detour, can you reliably refill water? Do you need to carry water for the 70 miles? Yeah, the Terriel there's, there's, there's water. You just need to know where it is. Um, you just need to not pass it when you see it. Okay. So take advantage of it when you see it. Yeah. If you see it, you fill up kind of thing. And that's the thing is like a lot of racers are trying to carry as little water as possible so that they're not as weighed down. So a lot of racers are like going with like two bottles and stuff like that, or maybe three bottles. And, but there's sections where that could get a little sketchy for sure. Especially if you're not making the time. Generally water's pretty dang good. Yeah. Like I said, I didn't run out and, um, I jumped in lots of creeks. <laughs> it was so hot the last couple of days. It, that was a lifesaver. So the, the route is a legitimate self-supported, no support, no help. I'm sure people have gotten stranded. People have, you know, gotten injured, whatever. What happens in those circumstances? Who do they call? Um, it's a good question. I mean, in general with the Colorado trail, we, 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 we recommend that people be prepared to self-evacuate. So basically trying to get yourself into so much of a trouble that you can't get yourself out. But if you do, it's basically about trying to communicate. In a lot of places, communication is not necessarily easy. Like cell phone coverage is pretty poor in a lot of places. That being said, most of the time you can get to, you can get pretty close to the trail 
on some pretty decent roads. So, you know, getting, getting picked up isn't impossible by any means. There's definitely plenty of paved roads that you cross and decent dirt roads that you get, that you cross or on. Um, so it's definitely accessible. There's definitely certain places where you, um, cause they're not accessible, but for the most part, you're not too, too far from getting a, being able to get picked up. But generally we hope people don't need to. Um, obviously what is, what is your role? I mean, are you the race director race? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm the race director, I which, guess. I mean, which basically means what, because we're not supporting, there's no prizes. There's, you know, it's, it, what, what does that yeah. mean? What do you actually do? Because one thing I was thinking, I was like, man, if someone needed help, you know, you're out on the, you, you want to be racing. Obviously oh, yeah. you want to be on the course. Yeah, I mean, so you're not the guy to call to come and, you know, bail someone out of jail if they get in a pickle. <laughs> And I made that very, I tried to make that point very strongly before the race in that the CTR does not need someone to do that because in all honesty, you're supposed to be taking care of yourself out there. And I really want to encourage that, that there, there is no bailout. There shouldn't be a bailout. You shouldn't be thinking or looking for a bailout. You should be going into this. How can I keep myself moving forward on the Colorado trail and alive and not going to places where I need someone to bail me out? Granted, things happen and shit happens. We all know that. Um, I'm not naive. <laughs> I mean, lots of shit happens out there. But yeah, it's just, so the race director, I mean, my job, as far as I see it anyways, is to, you know, set a date and inform people about the rules and back of results and to just deal with any sort of things that come up. Um, you know, like I took on the CTR right before COVID started. So my first year of running the race was COVID. And so there wasn't a race. Um, so that was really fun. And honestly, I, I thought it would be less work than it is. I guess I was a little bit idealistic about it, but it's actually quite a bit of work. I spent quite a bit of time answering emails and dealing with GPX stuff and you know, just little nitty gritty stuff that people want, you know, like people want lots of information before the race and uh, just trying to get that out to them as you know efficiently as I can and accurately as I can. You know, it's not like not like a job job, but it's definitely a fairly good amount of time. But yeah, it's just just basically making sure everything's lined up before the race starts. And um, I definitely had some. You know, I, I was definitely a little worried about doing the race, especially since it's the first year that I'm you know in charge of the race. I didn't want it to you know, be a detriment on the race itself. Um, I, but I, I felt like I did my homework beforehand, um, and really got the information out and it seems like it worked and there didn't seem to be a whole lot of issues. And most people seem to have a, a very seamless sort of time following all the stuff that, that, that was necessary for them to do, you know, like getting all the, the GPX files and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like the information was out there and people got it. So I feel like I did a pretty good job, but we'll see. <laughs> um, I'm kind of curious. Hopefully, hopefully think everybody thinks I did a good job. Um, I haven't heard any yeah, complaints. I mean, um, I haven't heard any. Um, no, I'm saying I haven't. Yeah. yeah. I was just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 that, and that's the thing I keep trying to, uh, I really want to drive home to people too, is like that, that is my job at this race. It's not to hold your hand. And it's once you're on the course, I, I am hundred percent, happy to answer almost any questions leading up to the race. Um, and I'm, I'll divulge any secrets I have, quote unquote, because I don't have any secrets about how I do it. I'm happy to share any of that stuff. Um, and so, and that's what I feel like people need to do is really, really prep and have all that beta in their head. And then once the race starts, just, just do their thing and not 
in real life, that's not going to happen. There's not going to be someone that's going to pop out of the woods and save them or pick them up or any of that stuff. That's why I wanted to kind of talk about, you know, give some information to people who are going to be listening, maybe think about doing it, you know, information. Carrie State said this with uh, K-Lite, information is very light and I recommend you carry as much of it as you can. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. No, I mean, that's it's just like, that's one of the things I've always done in all these events is I, I meticulously research things and I go through my gear over and over and over and over again. Like I'm a meticulous planner. Um, and, and it's, it's definitely, the more you have that in the back of your head and you don't have to think about it, the easier it is once you're out on the trail. hundred percent. Sure. Yeah. That's one thing we talk about is, you know, when you're at home is the time to prepare, plan, think about everything. And then you yep. go and do it. And those are all things you don't have to worry about. It's already done. And you can yep. just focus on, you know, dealing with whatever just you need riding. to just ride on your bike. man. <laughs> so, okay. You've been involved with the Colorado trail race. It sounds from as early as 2007. How has it changed? If at all? I mean, it seems still very much like a grassroots, you know, show up. Here's the route. No prizes. I mean, has it changed much uh, in in these years, or how has it changed? Yeah, in two thousand seven, um, I think there were seven that finished, so it wasn't exactly high numbers. In the first like three years of the race, I don't think we exceeded like forty or fifty people. And this year, I think we had seventy three ish start um, at the group start, and then there was quite a few ITTs as well. So I'd say the numbers are definitely up from you know the beginning. The trail itself is, or the route, I shouldn't say the route, the trail, the Colorado Trail is more or less the same, but the route that we use for the Colorado Trail race has changed. We've taken on uh, section 22 and 23, which we used to go over Cinnamon Pass before that. Um, so the, the route's evolved a little bit. We did a tiny change this year. So we're still looking to evolve whenever we can. And for me, evolving is getting off of pavement as much as possible. So anytime there's an opportunity to get off pavement or to use more of the actual Colorado trail without it being ridiculous, I'm all about trying to figure out to make that work. Um, so it's definitely evolving a little bit. Um, but for the most part, it's, it has stayed very much. I would say the vibe is very similar, you know, doing this year's race. It felt a lot like years in the past, you know, everyone's super excited, a bunch of really, really strong people out there. I guess that's the one thing is like, it definitely has brought out more and more interest of different kind of people doing it. Um, Cause you get people who are like, you know, bike packers and then you get people who are racers, you know, traditional racers who are taking on bike pack racing. And so it's an interesting mix sometimes of people for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Pace and try to take it on. Yep. Yep. Uh, that sounds yep, interesting. I uh, I was seeing that he he didn't complete it for anyone who didn't uh, know. Yep. Um, and I really I appreciated his takeaway. I mean, this guy's a, a world champion racer, XC racer, and very accomplished. And he was very humbled by the trail, which shows you how hard it is. But it sounds like he he's itching to go back out there and and give it another try. So it'll be interesting to see his his yeah, take. Yeah, interesting too. to see if he if he uh, if he comes back for sure. I I heard him saying something that about it just on Instagram. So we'll see. Right. Yeah. He was actually, um, I saw him when we were riding from Silverton or uh, from Durango to Silverton, he was out there riding the other direction. I'm not sure, you know, he's probably just out riding. I don't know. But, um, yeah, he's, I mean, he lives in Durango. I mean, I couldn't imagine not being tempted (laughs) if you lived in Durango and the trailhead's right there. Yeah. I mean, if I were him though, I would race the opposite direction because racing home, 
that's the shit, dude. Yeah. Pro <laughs> I would start in Denver and race home. Yeah. yeah. That's motivation. That's big. That's a good idea. Yeah. So at this point, you've completed it nine times. You've won it four times. Is mm-hmm. that right? What yeah. What keeps you coming back, man? Like what keeps you inspired to keep going back and pushing it and putting it all out there? It's a great question. Um, I questioned myself a lot this year. <laughs> um, why do I keep doing it? I guess for me, it's it's just my love of um, I mean, not to say that you can't enjoy the Colorado trail without doing the Colorado trail race. That's a ridiculous thought, but, um, for me, it's just like, I guess the, the combination of the convenience of being able to do it relatively easily, um, in, in as far as logistics go, I'm not saying physically, but logistically it's, it's relatively easy for me to like, Oh, heck, I'm going to do the CT this year because I live halfway between the start and the finish and I know it so well. And so like logistically I, I can, I can get myself to the start line without as much effort as some people. So it's a little bit easier for me to just kind of throw my leg in there. Um, and two, I just, I, I love that trail so much. I mean, it's like it, it, that, that, that trail changed my life and uh, in many, many, many positive ways. And so every time I get to go back and visit it, it just, like I said, it feels like going to visit an old friend. Um, you know, granted it's an old friend that kind of beats you up a little bit, <laughs> which is kind of a weird statement to make, but, um, but it is, it's just, I just love being out there and the experience just reminds me of all the times I've been out there before and makes me think of all the friends that I've spent time out there with. And it just fills them, fills my soul with all that mountain goodness. And, you know, I, I would love to hike the Colorado trail again, but it's just, the time isn't really there. And, um, so it's like, for me, it's like, I get to, I get to experience pretty much the whole thing in a short period of time. And, and I still really enjoy it. You know, I, I, I thought this was going to be my last one, you know, I really did. Um, but I'm already, I'm already thinking about it, you know, I mean, I want to do it again. It's messed up, but I do. Um, I just, yeah, I, it's, it's, I can't imagine saying I won't do it again. Um, I can't imagine. I don't believe myself. (laughs) So, I mean, it may not be next year, but I, I hope to do it again. It's like I said, it's just, it's hard and it's heartbreaking at times. And, um, you definitely question, you know, why am I doing this for my vacation? You know, but most of the time you're just like, this is badass, man. I get to ride my bike through the mountains of Colorado under my own power. And it's, it's a cool experience. It, it really is. It's just, I mean, it, everybody who's gone bikepacking knows that experience, you know, carrying all your stuff and being self-sufficient is really cool. Um, but to do it through the mountains and like that kind of expanse of, of, of terrain and trail. And it's, it's, it's a powerful experience. It makes you feel like you're good at something, you know, like, and you're doing it. And it also makes you feel really small and appreciative of your place in this world. And I think that's a great thing to do. <laughs> you know, um, it just, it, it's, it's, it's a great experience for, I think humans, not necessarily the Colorado trail, but like any experience that just humbles you and makes you feel happy and fills all those holes in you. And just makes you, glad to be alive and yeah it's interesting i like what you said about how it humbles you but it also like kind of builds you up because wow that's something pretty badass that's something very difficult and i just accomplished that and now you can take that into you know your everyday life or whatever so oh for sure that's an interesting balance of how if, if you zoom out it you know or even you know zoom into the pain zoom out to the expanse of the the nature and the setting that you're in and it can humble you, 
but to complete it, it, it really does. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful feeling that, that really stays with you and it doesn't just go away, you know, whenever you stop. No, I mean, it, it, it is, it's a very strong sense of accomplishment, you know, I mean, and people should, excuse me, feel that because it is wicked hard. And, and I, and I say that from someone who's done it so many times and this time was not any easier at all. There was no freebies. It probably hurt more than usual, but I still just loved it, you know? And, um, it does, it just makes you feel, it gives you a sense of accomplishment without, you know, feeling like you're on top of the world per se. You're still just a little humble, little human being, yeah. but, um, but then you're like, I can do some other stuff, you know, it gives you, it gives you a belief in yourself, uh, which yeah. is, which is something that's much needed in this world probably is just a, a absolutely man. You know? And then, and then, and I think what's so cool about the Colorado trail race and that the rules that we implement is that when you finish this, you have finished it under your own power. And I think that's something that like, isn't emphasized enough. Like you did it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You did it. And that's, that's awesome. You know, like there wasn't a support crew. There wasn't this and that and that it was you, yeah. you know, and that's awesome. You know, you succeed and fail by your own, whatever your own, yeah. you know, you, it's only onto you if, if, you know, no matter what, well, happens. especially on that trail. Cause there's like a, you know, like there's so many opportunities to, to quit. That's a good point. It, it, it it breaks you, you know, everybody's, I think everybody cries out there and has their heart broken at times. It's just, I don't think anybody makes a complete choice of the Colorado trail without a little bit emotionally attacked and like drained a little bit. And so to like push through that is, is legit. And it's, it, I mean, it, it really is like it's it, it, not only physically, but mentally you push through some pretty gnarly shit and it, it's same thing. It's, it's as long as you don't let it take you down, um, it's going to make you feel more capable. It's, 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 it's an accomplishment for sure. I mean that to everybody who finishes, it's an accomplishment. It's I'm proud of you all. <laughs> it's well, awesome. Well said. So what were your goals going into this year's race? Um, I would say I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have some fun and I wanted to try to go sub five days. Um, that's kind of been my goal the last, I mean, I, 2012 and 2013, I was hell bent on winning and setting a record. Um, but since then, I don't quite have that sort of aim anymore. So now I'm just like all about trying to finish. Um, but I love finishing under five days. That's always my goal. So it felt really good to do it again. But I would say just finishing and doing it under five days. Those are my goals. So your uh, single speed record that came on the AZT, now I'm kind of curious. I, I assume that you were still gunning for a uh, single speed record on the CTR. Um, is, was that even a focus for you at AZT or were you just riding it or racing it? I mean, obviously you're racing. <laughs> it was definitely it was definitely part of my goal set. Um, you know, I had splits written down to, to kind of aim me in that direction. So, yeah, I mean, I went, I always try to go into something with a little bit of goals in mind, um, just to kind of keep me motivated. And, um, yeah, the AZT, I definitely, you know, I wanted to see how fast I could go for sure. I was definitely going for a PR, um, for sure. And, um, I had a terrible first morning. Uh, I went the wrong way a few times and honestly thought that my chances of even coming close to a, a PR or a record were blown. But then the second half of the ride went awesome and I just, had so much fun and went so fast that everything turned around. But, um, yeah, I mean, I you never know, never give up. 
Yeah, man, never give up. It's true. I pretty much had given up on going fast and I just was like, well, screw it. Just ride and just try to ride. Just try not to screw around and just try to keep moving. And that worked out well enough that like towards the end, I was like, huh, I think I can still do this. And and then I started feeling a little bit better and started putting a little bit more into the pedals and it worked out. But yeah, it's it, it, that was an awesome ride too. So why with the CTR have you kind of, it, it sounds like you kind of let the single speed record go. It's not necessarily a carrot, carrot that you're chasing after. Is there a reason for that? Um, it's just too hard. <laughs> <laughs> Good I answer. mean, uh, honestly, the single speed record for the, for the CTR is, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to say it's untouchable by me, but it's, it's, I think it's like 10 hours faster than I went this year. Um, granted the, the record is going in the other direction, which might be a little bit easier on a single speed, not to make excuses or anything like that, but the record's held by timing. Um, and I mean, not to make excuses, but that guy's a freaking genius on a bike. <laughs> um, and I just, I don't even know if I could touch that. I mean, I, I probably could have, you know, 10 years ago, I could probably have a good chance at it, but I just don't quite have that kind of power anymore. And, and, and also I, I've done like the sleep deprived thing to the extreme. And that's kind of how I've done things really fast. Like I can go pretty fast, but to go really fast, I got to really push that sleep depression, uh, sleep depri- deprivation thing. And I just don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I, I did it so hard for so many years that I just, uh, I'm not willing to go to those places anymore to, to gain a few hours. Um, so I guess that's, that's some of it. Yeah. And honestly, I, I think this, the AZT single speed record was much more approachable than the CTR one is. Okay. Yeah. I, I love to talk about sleep deprivation. Um, so let's, let's go Uh-oh. back to your, you know, heyday or whatever you uh-huh. want to call it when you were really pushing the limits of, what, what your body is capable of. I know. And I know because I, there's a great video that you put together about the Colorado trail race. I know it's, um, you can find out bikepacking.com. I'm sure, um, on YouTube and stuff. Um, but you, you talked a little bit about how you like to go deep and, and you like to, it, it almost seemed like you like to find out what was in your brain when things got weird or something. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I would say I would still have, I'm still having some of that experience. Like even on this year's CTR, I didn't push the sleep deprivation that hard, but I was, you know, I went into it a little bit tired and the combination of not sleeping a whole lot and being kind of tired. I definitely had some, some pretty loopy thoughts out there and sleep deprivation is pretty crazy stuff. I've never felt so messed up in my life than I have being sleep deprived. So like 2012 and then 2013, when I was racing the CTR, I was, I was basically willing to do anything to try to win or set a record. And so I would, I mean, I think in 2012, I think in that CTR, I think I slept like four and a half or five hours in the whole race. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, I look back at that and I don't know how the hell I did that because I, I definitely can't do that now. <laughs> I would be a, babbling idiot on the side of the trail. Um, but back then I, it was all about that focus to get to the goal I was trying to achieve. And I would, I don't know if it was quote unquote worth it, but I wouldn't do it any differently. Um, I don't think what actually happens when you get that. I mean, what you say, it gets weird. Like what, what gets weird? Your own brain doesn't seem familiar anymore. Like, like you have to constantly remind yourself what you're doing. 
Cause you'll like be hiking your bike. And then all of a sudden you're like, what am I doing? Where am I? Why am I hiking my bike? And then like, sometimes you'd like put your bike down and then like leave the trail to go do something and come back to the trail. And you're like, which way am I going? Oh. And then like, there was moments where I like, I literally would think about somebody else and I'd be thinking about them. And then all of a sudden I thought that I was them. Wow. Like I was seeing things from their perspective. It's, it's like it, very it, hallucinatory. Oh, very hallucinatory. Um, if that's even a word. It sounded yeah, right. Yeah, right. I, well, we just, <laughs> we just made it. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it literally is like some of the, the craziest experiences I've ever had in the sleep deprived states. And, but it also like, it tears away all the insulation you have to some of your thoughts. So like, you know, whether we recognize it in everyday life or not, like there's things in our brain that we have buried or insulated. So we don't think about them very often because um, whether they're uncomfortable or um, painful or whatever, but when you're in those states, you, like you can't really make that choice. Like your brain pops up, whatever it's going to pop up and you just kind of have to deal with it. And so like, you're kind of like being forced to watch this movie of like, you know, the dark crevices of your brain and you know, you're like, you don't want to watch and you want to look away and you want to fast forward, but the whole time you're just out there by yourself too. And so it's, I think that that's kind of the weirdest part is when you're in that sleep deprived state and you're on a self-supported ride, you're the only monitor for your like mental health. Like there's not somebody checking in on you like, Hey, you good? You know, like giving you a couple of little tests to make sure that your brain's still like doing the right things. It's only up to you. Like you're having to self-check while you're in this like crazy state. And then you're putting yourself in this crazy state because you're just trying to win a stupid bike race. You know, like it's like all these things kind of like get in your head and it's pretty crazy what it does to your brain. Um, but at the same time, I feel like I've really gotten to know myself because through those experiences, as I've just stripped away all the insulation to my thoughts that I didn't want to think and feel like I kind of dealt with those things to some degree, or at least like thought them through to the point of being like, Oh, okay. That's all that I need to do with that. And so the, it, it was pretty powerful experience to do that stuff. Um, but I definitely wouldn't recommend a lot of it because it is kind of hard and you you're literally on a fine line between like having a mental breakdown yeah. <laughs> um, and some people have, there has been at least one mental breakdown on the CT that I'm aware of. Can you talk about it or should we not? Um, it wasn't my own personal experience. So I don't feel comfortable saying a lot about it. Um, but somebody, it was quite a few years ago was really close to, to Durango, you know, close to finishing and just kind of lost their mind. Yeah. I think they threw their bike in the woods and just kind of like went on a ranting rave. And honestly, it's not, that weird to me. Cause like, um, I've been in that state and it, it is, it's like, I could, I could imagine that being a very easy thing to just cross that line. Well, our brains are interesting places. And, uh, what, what I was thinking about as you were talking, I've been studying like, uh, like psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, there's a book that I was reading about how to discover, discover your mind by Michael Poland. And he talks about how, you know, your brain is essentially just a pattern recognition machine. You know, it's evolved to just, you know, it's not trying to like think of all these different things. It's just trying to 
put things where they go as quickly as it can so it can be as efficient as possible. And uh, one thing that mushrooms do is it allows you to get outside of those grooves and, and kind of look at things maybe in a different perspective in a way that you haven't. And it almost sounds similar, like you talked about it, it breaks down that that wall of like pattern recognition where, you know, your thoughts always go to the same place. A tree is always a tree, you know, I'm always me, but, but now you're saying, okay, well now I'm my friend. Now that tree is a a ukulele or whatever, you know I mean? It's, Uh, it's, they're usually dinosaurs, dinosaurs. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Dinosaurs. When somebody else described the trees as dinosaurs, I was like, holy shit, I'm not alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. I was like, holy shit, they really do turn into dinosaurs. Do you ever get scared? Um, I'm, you know, I, I've heard other people, I mean, that have legitimately got scared, um, you know, bikepacking, especially when your mental state isn't all, all there. Uh, do you ever get scared or you kind of pass that? Oh, no, I, I, I get scared. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, no matter how prepared you are and how much you have your shit together, it, it's it, it's amazing how vulnerable you feel out there at times. Not that say that whole time I feel vulnerable, but there's moments like like when it rains after dark and you're at twelve thousand feet, it makes you feel incredibly small and incredibly uh, fragile and vulnerable. And there's no doubt that like it's sometimes very scary. Um, Cause it like, makes you question everything you're doing, you know? And like, why am I not home with my family? Yeah. You, know? you got a little girl, um, you got your wife. And it's just really like, why, why am I choosing to do this? And, but yeah. And it, you know, it's, I don't think anybody ever stops being scared to some degree, but at that being said, I was like, I wouldn't say I'm any more scared than I would be in a normal situation either. Like I ride at night all the time and I'm not like that. That doesn't bother me at all. It's just, some, there's just moments that when you're alone for that long that you're just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it'd be heavy. Yeah. What do you answer yourself in those moments when you're like, why am I doing this? Why aren't I with my, you know, my wife and my daughter? Why am I hallucinating with dinosaurs in the trees? Do you do you have a good answer for for yourself in those moments? Um, I think a lot of what I do, it, you know, it's just it, it's a temporary thing. Um, I think is what I always remind myself. In everyday life, I'm always, you know, wishing I could have that experience, I guess, you know, like, you know, we're always, we're always pining for adventure and it's easy to be like, you know, it's easy to overlook that stuff when you're pining for adventure. And so I think that kind of helps compensate a little bit for that fear factor. So instead of your goal for the race or, yeah, I mean, or switching from your goal to the race to... Um, what is your approach to the race now? I mean, what are some of the secrets that you've learned? What, what, you know, what are your goals whenever you go? Well, I guess I said goals again. <laughs> uh, how do you, how do you approach the race now? So that's it, it's a great question. Cause I feel like, um, this year was a great example of how just people get really excited and go too fast. I mean, I was probably running 15th or 20th on the first day cause I was pacing myself and I even had people look at me and like, they said, Hefe, what are you doing back here with us? And I'm like, I'm pacing myself (laughs) and and people didn't get it. Like people, like, I think people don't understand that in a 500 mile race, you don't have to take off on the front unless you really are going for the record of the win. And, And if you are, you better be damn sure that you can keep that pace. And I think that it's, it's just interesting how many people go out pretty hard 
And then, you know, by like mile 100, 120, they're barely hanging on. And that's, I feel like that's solid advice to anybody who wants to finish the CT uh, or the CTR is really pace yourself. If you're going, you know, it's not a, it's not a cross country ride and you're going to end up hiking. So don't worry about trying to blast up every hill on the first day and just look long-term, um, look down the trail. And, uh, like I said, I'm like the first person to get off their bike and walk in the CTR. Even when I run gears, I, if it gets steep, I just get off and walk. And I think a lot of people don't get that that is a really good way to, to save your energy and to not blow all your matches on the first day. And I think that I get a little disappointed with how many people do that because I want to see people finish. It just makes it so much harder to carry on through the rest of the race when you burn all those matches. And, and it's just so many people to it. I think that's one of those things that just has to come with experience almost, you know, yeah. because I've yeah. also heard, you know, there's another way to look at it that I've heard where, you know, if you are going to go for, you know, whether it's your fastest time or the fastest time or whatever, the only way to get there is to start out fast. You know, you can't start out slow necessarily. And the only way to find out is if you can sustain, you know, a certain effort is by starting out at that effort, you know, and then, yeah, maybe you don't make it. And so next year you come back stronger next year, you come back with a different strategy. I don't know, but I can, I can, uh, I can get it. I think everybody gets, uh, you know, excited at the beginning of a race. Yeah, they do. (laughs) (laughs) Did anything go wrong this year? You've done it so many times. You're so experienced. I can't imagine. I mean, I can imagine your kit and everything is so dialed in. You talked about how meticulous you are. Did anything go wrong? Anything you would have done differently? Just a couple of minor mistakes. One, I somehow got a pair of bad AA batteries in my GPS. And so, which wasn't a huge deal, but uh, my GPS died on the first day. Luckily, I know the trail well enough that the GPS isn't necessary all the time. The other mistake is I, I didn't get to Silverton before the store closed. And um, I didn't quite have enough food to make it to Buena Vista, but I was not going to stay in Silverton until the store opened. And so I ended up just making it on the food I had, which I mean, it worked out okay, but I was definitely on vapors when I hit uh, Buena Vista. Um, so that was a little bit of a mistake. You know, other than that, I would say everything was fairly dialed and um, worked as, as I, as I had hoped or wished. So yeah, I mean, most of the stuff was, was spot on just a couple little tiny mistakes and they weren't like anything detrimental per se. I mean, the store, the store at Silverton could have been, um, but I started with, apparently just enough food to make it to Buena Vista. So I was okay. But yeah, that, that could have been a really bad mistake, but, um, but I just kind of dealt with it. Well, I wanted to talk to you about longevity and bike packing. You're, are you 48 or 49? Uh, 48. 48. So I'm, I'm 41. So what do I have to look forward to? I mean, (laughs) I mean, that's one of the great things about, I mean, there, you know, I've, I've interviewed uh, people who have done the tour divide in their sixties and, you know, you know, do you do anything different now or, or is it just all systems go, you just keep it moving and, and it, and it'll be there for you. I think as you get older, you definitely have to take a little bit more care of yourself and, you know, spend time doing all the stuff that nobody likes to do, like taking care of your core strength and stuff like that. Not to say that I do a lot of that stuff, but I try to do a little bit more as I get older, just taking care of the, the body. Um, that being said, I definitely 
developed a little bit of an ankle issue out there this year um, on the CT. So I definitely have some stuff to deal with before I do any more big, big rides. And it's, it's definitely, I would say like, you know, the, the, the speed factor is definitely harder as you get old, older, just cause you know, your body just doesn't quite have the same assets that it used to have. And training is definitely a little bit harder to pull off and stuff. But I mean, obviously there's a lot of, a lot of older guys out there doing it and oh, gals yeah. too. And um, yeah, so it's, it's not, I don't think age is a limit to what you can do or, or being able to do something, but it, it might be a limit on how fast you can go um, or something like that. But, but yeah, I mean, there's tons of older people out there backpacking and bikepacking. It was, it was definitely cool to see. It was definitely not all youth out there. I mean, I hope that bikepacking until I can't do anything, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I love it. Um, I mean, I hope to do a bunch of it with my daughter, you know, she gets a little bit bigger and yeah, buddy. Um, my, my wife loves to bike pack too. So hopefully we hope to do a lot of family trips. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's a, another, it's just another great tool to get out into the, to the back country. And, um, I don't, I don't see any limits with age per se, other than maybe speed, especially with, uh, with e-bikes coming along, right. Would you ever, uh, is that an option for you when, whenever the, you know, I don't know when you're 70, 75, <laughs> <laughs> yeah when i can't pedal anymore i'll look into that yeah if i can't pedal yeah but i mean i'm still riding a single speed so <laughs> yeah oh no no no. i'm thinking like way way in the i've always thought you know i'll i'll uh you know ride a, a you know just a traditional bike for as long as i can then i'll switch to an e-bike and then whenever i'm like on my deathbed i'll switch to like a dual sport and just go you know off into the right. desert on a motorcycle or something <laughs> yeah i think that's a great plan yeah thank you uh, yeah, I might, uh, yeah, I've got it all planned out. I've, I've probably crashed my motorcycle out in big bend or something like that. <laughs> Don't come find me. Do not resuscitate. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you, man. Just keep it going. Uh, don't let it go, but we are seeing a lot more. It does seem like more and more like older people, um, or people as they get older are keeping it going which is something I like to highlight that, you know, this isn't an age specific thing, men, women, young and old, it doesn't matter. But, um, you know, ultra endurance cycling is really, it's doable, you know, because it isn't this XC sprint and, you know, you're not redlining. Um, you can kind of take it at your own pace and, and just kind of go and you see it being, you know, I, I like to think of it as an equalizer, you know, over, you know, over a great distance, you know, age doesn't matter quite as much. Gender doesn't matter quite as much. It's just a lot of it is just mental toughness and physical ability. Yeah. And, and just that, that hunger to do it. Yeah. Um, I think drive. it's a lot of it too. That yeah. internal, whatever that internal thing is that just keeps you cranking or, or pushing your bike up or whatever it is. I mean, you just got to have that thing that, that wants to keep going. Absolutely. What's next for you, sir? Uh, I don't really have anything on the agenda. Um, I've got a lot of uh, yard and house projects I need to wrap <laughs> up before winter comes. <laughs> I might head for the AZT 800 this fall if things are okay. Oh, cool. Yeah, the the race is in October now. And um, I really, I've really i never done the 800, so I really want to do that. So yeah, that's that's kind of the, the, the loose plan. Um, but other than that, I don't really have any, any races planned or anything like that. I do put on a race myself called the Gunny Loopy Loop um, Labor Day weekend. So I'll be dealing with that a little bit. You want to talk about that real quick? I, I've, I know that you've created it and I've heard of it, but I don't know much about it. 
Um, so it's two different loops that start and finish in Gunnison. Um, they both start uh, the Saturday of Labor Day weekend. There's a like a 195-mile route and a 315-mile route. They're both really hard and rugged, decent resupplies. You know, they kind of hit some of my favorite places in the valley, some of my favorite trails. I think this is like the fourth year. Um, usually don't get a whole lot of people to come out, but uh, usually like 10 or 15 of us. And it's a pretty, this is a pretty gnarly race, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's probably a tiny bit more climbing per mile than the AZT or the CTR. So it's, you know, it's, it's pretty rugged. It's definitely a rugged single track kind of, you know, similar to the CTR, but maybe just a tiny bit more climbing. <laughs> um, but the cool thing is it's a loop and you can do it, you know, you don't have to shuttle. So once you arrive in Gunnison, it's just like get on your bike and ride and come right back to your car. Yeah. But yeah, it's a great little, great little ride though. If anybody's looking to get some experience under the belt, um, especially if you're looking at doing the CTR or the AZT, great preparation for that stuff. And it's also kind of a window into all the riding that kind of helped me get to where I am. Um, cause this is where I cut my teeth right on. on all these crazy trails. Um, Hell yeah, dude. and, uh, and it's gorgeous. Uh, it's, it's a gorgeous route too. So, uh, if people want to find out more about that, I know you have a website slash blog. Yep. Jwookie1.com. Um, that's where you can find info for the loopy loop and for the CTR. And, uh, yeah, I also write a blog there too, but I don't write a whole lot. It's not super active, but I keep the, uh, the CTR stuff and the loopy loop stuff fairly updated. So, um, if anybody's looking for stuff to ride, um, you can find a couple things there for sure. And it's also a great place to contact me if you guys, if anybody out there has any questions, I'm happy to, happy to share info and experience and stuff. So if anybody's looking for that, I am, I am accessible for sure. Mr. Colorado trail. Mr. Hit him up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, buddy. Well, dude, congrats on your, your ninth finish. And I appreciate you. you, uh, taking some time and just sharing your experience and some of your knowledge with us, uh, just in, uh, us fans here. Heck yeah. It was awesome. All right, man. We'll go rest up and uh, hopefully we'll get to catch up with you again sometime soon. Sweet. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, you too, man. Have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. Again, thanks to Hefe Branham for coming on the show and sharing his experiences with us. Now, before we wrap up today's show, I just want to cover a few items of housekeeping. Firstly, titanium cups are going to be in stock very soon. They've been stuck at port over in California for several months, just a product of COVID. But I've dropped those off with our engraver. He says that we should have them back in about two weeks. So if you have been one of the many people who are wanting to get your hands on one of these titanium good morning cups, get ready and uh, be on the lookout. A great way to stay up to date with new product releases. Actually, patrons have already been granted access to buy the titanium cups early. So if you're a patron, you can go ahead and go over there and, and make sure you get one. The next best way to get in to make sure you don't miss anything is to sign up for our newsletter over at bikesordeath.com. Or just follow us on Instagram. We'll post it there too. So if you're looking for one of those, be on the lookout. Follow, follow, follow. And those will be available very soon. Also in the Bikes or Death store right now, we have a pre-order going on for a Till Death tee. 
That's our new logo, the Till Death logo. And this t-shirt is in a crisp, clean white. Why did we go with white? Well, because we look at white as being a canvas for anything that you wanna create. Personally, I plan on doing a tie-dye version with mine, but you could just get yours dirty with mud, sweat, you could color on it, cut off the sleeves, whatever you wanna do. That pre-order is gonna be open until this Sunday, August 8th at 8 p.m. So if you're interested in getting in on that pre-order, head over to bikesfordeath.com, point your browser to the store, and clickety-clickety, donut persnickety, get your t-shirt today. And how about some East Texas showdown news? I haven't talked about that in a little while. So here's a quick update. Uh, we opened up registration to 50 people and that sold out. I say sold out. It's a free event, but it quote unquote sold out within the first day, which is awesome. I had no idea what to expect. And I'm currently talking to both the Sam Houston National Forest and the Davy Crockett National Forest trying to get permitted to allow up to 50. So I know we have a bunch of people on the wait list and I've been getting asked when they will know. And I can only tell you that I am at the mercy of the rangers at the National Forest I'm in contact with one of them. He's been super helpful. And it's just the other national forest that I'm having a hard time getting a hold of. Um, but I am working on it. And I'm hopeful that we can get the permits. It's all kind of weird because of COVID and what they're allowing and what they're not allowing. I'm not in a position to say what might happen yet, but just hang tight. I am trying to open up all 100 spots. So if you're on the wait list, hang tight. And I hope to have some good news for you very soon. Now about the route itself, Sarah and I are actually headed out on the route this weekend to do what I hope is the final ground truthing route recon trip for the route. I've been playing around on Ride with GPS and making some tweaks, trying to make it as good as possible. And I'm going to go out this weekend or we're going to go out this weekend we're going to check out the entire route and hopefully we'll be able to send out a route to everybody who is participating here within the next two or three weeks or so, maybe less. I just don't want to give myself a crazy deadline and all y'all people are going to be emailing me and stuff. So uh, that's what's going on with the East Texas showdown. I still have no clue what I'm doing. I'm just throwing a bike party in the woods and uh Looking forward to it, to be honest, but I know it is approaching. It's going to be here sooner than I realize, and I need to get my booty in action. So that's what's going on with that. And with that, I think we are done. All right, everybody. Thank you for being here today. Now you know what to do. Go ride your damn bike. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. Ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. 